Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. Today on the show is an interview with Clara Tracy, singer-songwriter from Enniskillen, County Fermanagh, who's lived in Paris for a decade and currently resides in Belfast, often found apparently on the road between Belfast and Dublin. She recently released a brilliant long gestating debut album called Black Forest, which kind of sounds like nothing else released in Ireland this year. Yes, that's because in some of the tracks she's singing in French, Sacre Bleu, but it also sounds like it's from the 70s or something, a vibe which she says she was indeed going for. She worked with Gilliband's Daniel Fox on the record on production. There's a track on it called Jane Birkin, and she admits there's a big Serge Gansberg influence over the album too. Serge and Jane Birkin were partners, just FYI. So I was really happy to chat with Clara about her journey, playing with the likes of Maya Sophia, Ivanessa Francis, Paddy Hanna, up to releasing her debut album. So we talk about that for about 30 minutes and then we go into the songs on the album. You don't need to have listened to Black Forest to enjoy the chat, might help, but we'll have plenty moments from it throughout the interview as well. But since it's a long one today, I said I'd split things up. So after about 30 minutes with Clara Tracy, we'll interrupt the broadcast for our regular weekly new music section. And it's a really, really good one this week. It always is, isn't it? I I think I have to say that, but it is really good this week. Three new songs, all introduced by the artists involved. We have Dashoda talking about his first single in three years, Looking For You, which is so good. Kez has one of the most distinctive voices I've heard this year, and she's going to explain her debut single, How Can You Not See?, And then we have Ways of Seeing, the moniker of Cork artist James O'Connell, who's actually already released his debut album. That's called End Comes to Light. But he's going to talk us through one of the tracks on it, Every Night, which is a song that jumped out to me on one of my first listens to the album. Looking forward to getting into that record a little bit more. James is formerly of Hush Warcry, who Cork folks in particular will know Owen French, aka Talos, who's in that band as well. So that's what's coming up on this episode of The Point of Everything, just so you don't get a surprise when we come out of Clara's track after about 30 minutes. She had her album launch at Bello Bar on October 26, so we start off by talking about that for a little bit. Let's take a listen to Soap Girls and we'll get into the interview. Come, you fromage, 
How was your album launch last Wednesday in Bello Bar, wasn't it? That was a brilliant night. Honestly, I can't believe that like people turned up on a Wednesday night because <laughs> I, I was a bit last minute booking it. Uh, it was my first time booking a tour. So um, I didn't realise that there's a lot of going like, you know, forwards and back between the venues. And But I got it booked in like I announced it about two weeks or something, which isn't really that much time for an album launch, but people came. And it was the first time that I ever uh, played a full on gig with the the whole band. So that was really exciting. Uh, we only had two rehearsals, oh, but wow. it all, yeah, for like 14 <laughs> songs, but uh, they're amazing. They're Fair absolutely, the band. Who's, who's in the band? They're, they're just brilliant. Um, there's Brendan Doherty, who also played drums on the, the album he plays. Um, I met him um, when I was uh, playing Lee Vanessa Francis band. He plays with her as well. And um, he also plays with Villagers now, which is slightly problematic because he'd be busy enough, man, uh, to get. But uh, actually, he is the reason that the that the album launch happened in October because he's on tour for the whole month of oh. November and I had my heart set in playing with him. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so he was on drums and then um, I had Dan Fitzpatrick on guitar who I met when I was very briefly in Paddy Hanna's band and I just poached people really from <laughs> like everywhere. Like getting into bands and then taking their memories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then Jamie, um, my partner, who also plays in Mail. And the best players, yeah. uh, Oh, Jamie is holding hands with Jamie. Yeah, yeah. Ah, wow. I know the the pardon the pun. She's mine now, but (laughs) yeah. So uh, Jamie was doing synths and bass. Um, We had like uh, it was the first time getting the the uh, like the fake moogs out the Behringer model. Sorry, I'm talking gear now, but it was exciting having analog synths that are very temperature sensitive and temperamental on stage. But they they are they temperature. They're, because they're analog now please this is Jamie's domain don't ask me why there's something to do with the fact that they're analog and therefore just particular like you have to tune it like a violin you you have to uh-huh. every time it, it just depends yeah on the environment and even when you're on stage like it could slightly go um but so we've got a new thing now which is to use the guitarist's uh guitar tuner just to check sorry insider trick <laughs> but uh that was really fun and we had two of them on the go at the same time because I don't know, like there I you I layered up. We only had the Model D that was in the studio when I was recording, um, which is the monophonic version of the fake Moog. 
basically. But because we layered it, I needed um, to be, I need to have multiple lines. So then it just turns out that Don Fitzpatrick had the poly D, which is the polyphonic version. Uh, so now we have that, but then, okay, this is really only for music nerds. The model D sounds better. So you kind of need to mix the two together to get the good sound. So anyway, there you go. We had some temperamental synths that worked out well at the gig. And um, yeah, it was it was great. Um, had a revolving Black Forest Gato. Um, uh, which which I, I never I, I had this in my mind and was thinking it'd be real dreamy and kind of Lynchian going around you know sultrily on this turntable I didn't actually like think about how fast a vinyl moves it was absolutely <laughs> flying around like I and thankfully my neighbor who baked it had like like secured the cherries on the top with cocktail sticks inside you couldn't see you know so they didn't come flying off but yeah that was really fun it was it was great now. The only thing was I nearly got clamped at the end. So I completely missed the aftermath and like hearing what everyone thought about it because I was like just dodging the clampers for about an hour after it. But I did I, I, I successfully evaded them. Wow. Got yeah. one over them. Yeah. So is <laughs> the album Black Forest, is it named after the cake? Is it named after something else? I rarely ask about album titles, but since you mentioned a revolving cake on stage, I feel uh... like we need to know. I mean, I think my favorite thing about words um, and names is that they are um, like, what, you know, what does it mean? Like it means maybe one thing to, to me or to another person. But like there, I feel like in that um, uh, title, there's a few different images, you know, there's like a forest. And actually the song, the song kind of goes through those uh, in a way. Like I actually came up with that um, concept in the first place. Um uh, when I was, it's one of the oldest songs on the on the album Black Forest. I wrote it in 2015. There were all the songs were written oh, wow. between 2015 2020. Because I mean, the album is you know it's getting on now. It's already two years old. It's just coming out. Yeah, they were written between 2015 and and 2019, really, actually. And um, yeah, I had kind of been seeing uh, this guy, and we used to live together. And then I moved out, and so we was we're still friends and everything. But he was kind of you know trying to come up with some reason to, to message me in the middle of the night and of course I was still up when he just gets on he's like c'est quoi ton dessert préféré like what's your favourite dessert and I was like okay, I've heard it all like I really have <laughs> like, what, like what am I supposed to say back to this and um, I just I loved it like but um, and then he, he just replied got straight back and was like forêt noire forest black and I'd never I'd never heard it in French there's no mention of gâteau oh. as well like in the French it was just forêt noire and I, uh, I was just like taken by that, um, that forest, you know, and then I think when you, you know, if you take each word individually, then it's like, ah, and then I started to imagine the cherries in the Schwarzwald and just it conjured up all these images. So it, the song kind of walks you through. Um, I probably, yeah, I know Junior Brother didn't give away what his title was about. So I've just, yeah, but the, I mean, if you listen to the song, you know, it does kind of get a bit further down the um line of innuendo as well but um <laughs> so is that advice as well like you know if you're if you're wondering what to message someone in the middle of the night if oh yeah what's your favorite, what's your dessert? favorite dessert uh and then you know seven years later <laughs> there'd be an album about it <laughs> um you mentioned being in Ethanessa francis's band as well uh yeah i um I used to play with Aoife and also Maya Sophia um, before I started really like performing under my own name. And how, yeah. how long ago were you playing with them? Were they around the same time sort of thing? Um, or? Yeah, I think I started uh, playing. Yeah, I'd say so. Maybe, yeah, maybe Maya slightly before um, I was playing 
violin with Maya, which I always thought was because um, I, I don't I used to play back in the day, but um, I, she got me into that again, which was wonderful. And uh, yeah, I learned loads from playing in Aoife's band. Um, I poached her drummer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, she she also started playing with my harp, so I don't feel so bad. Um, and uh, yeah, I I actually um, I think I started writing like I I started writing two songs, Jane Birkin and, and Strange Flowers around the time when I was playing. When I was playing with her, it would have been just for her UK album launch, and slightly before that so it was probably 20 when the precedented times some sometime like maybe it was early no I think we went over to Tomerden for her um launch in Yorkshire like, like 2020 2020 no was it, it, was, 2020, it was 2020 yeah, yeah um uh because it was normal yeah up until then <laughs> and uh and then yeah Maya was at Choice Awards yeah so everything was kind of going normal oh great uh, I was full steam ahead um and yeah we'll not mention that but yeah I I started writing to like Jane Birkin and Strange Flowers around that time. And I think that it was like directly influenced for playing in that like psychedelic uh, folk rock band. And yeah, I actually put in like behind the scenes now we were in the bellow bar of all places I only remembered this the other night and uh, um, she actually she's so composed now and like I think an absolute veteran but at the time the two of us used to have like really bad stage fright and so she was like backstage and she had these little um, uh, warm-ups that you could do that she learned from her mom as an actress like the tapping there's like tapping your head it really works I was doing it the other night in the battle bar again I can't remember exactly and I don't quote me on these positions but it's like above the eyebrow and you know you just kind of tap yourself a couple of times and I would and it relaxes you it's so good really? yeah it just it must just like tie into some you're thinking like because you're taking your mind off playing live because you're like why am I tapping my face like this yeah no but no there <laughs> the is something very do it now go on on like tap, tap. okay we do well, I'm, not, I'm not very I'm not very uh I'm not I you're don't not have stage fright right now yeah okay, yeah that's true that's true but um I'm very relaxed <laughs> and then there was this other thing the tremoring uh which I've since learned a lot more about um there's this form of kind of um uh tremoring out any stress and trauma called TRE that works really well that I was working on that um a while back but yeah so you just basically tremor out your 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 stress if you hold a kind of awkward position for whilst so this was us backstage in the ballot bar and then that's like the tapping the tremor kind of got fed into the Jane Birkin song then yeah it was great she her she's absolutely amazing songwriter have you listened to her new album yeah I just actually I've been trying to find the right moment to to you know give it my full attention and then on the drive down Oh, I, I finally got and uh, Elaine Howley as well was the same like I just I've oh, been running around loads and uh, the two of them like worked so well into each other yeah they're playing together in Cork as well for Quiet Lights Festival at the end of the month so and Belfast and Belfast as oh, well great, actually yeah great. they're playing the night before um, the uh, people just love them as well people just love Ethanessa Francis mm-hmm, it's great it's yeah great I think I think well, I remember when I first heard her first album before it came out, I was just like, wow, this doesn't really sound like music that comes necessarily from Ireland, even though she does talk, you know, she references Mayo in her new song. But like, um, it just I feel it has a sort of timeless international mm. feel. I think that's maybe why everyone's kind of blown away by it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. You mentioned Paddy Hanna as well playing in his band. It sounds like he was kind of a bit of an influence on the album as well because that was it was through listening to his Frankly, Frank, frankly yeah, yeah, Frankly that you got in contact with Daniel Fox. Yeah, well, the reason so I not got... ju- not just taking band members but taking producers <laughs> and stuff as well. I mean, I 
mean, people watch out. I am not going to lie. When I first moved back um, to this country, I realized it was very small, you know, mm. small town affair. And I actually only had to get the plane back to France. I made a few terrible oh, wow. faux pas in the first <laughs> year of being here. Um, but um, uh, yeah, no, Paddy uh, actually played. He he played harmonica at my launch yeah, in the yeah, Valbar. So that was one of the highlights. Um even more so than the cake um <laughs> i didn't realize that he played those harmonica lines i don't know how and then i was listening to his album uh, i wanted to listen to it yeah Frankie. the new one oh, yeah, yeah the with the day it came out because our, our albums actually came out in the same day so when i was driving down to dublin i, I put it on and um yeah he has a song uh, that it's goodbye as well and uh he had this gorgeous um there's a beautiful piano part in it and then this harmonica solo and i just said to jamie i was like oh who's playing that Paddy, so uh, so I got on to him anyway, and um, he uh, we were gonna do "We'll Gather Lilacs in the Spring" again, like an old nineteen forties tune at the upright piano in the ballo bar. But then, unfortunately, we couldn't use the upright. So at the last second, like literally the the eleventh hour, I got on to him the night before the gig and was like, "Can we do this Linda Perhax tune instead?" Hey, now who really cares? Um, I don't know if you've heard that. I think you'd enjoy it. If it's yeah, I feel like it, it's of an Ethanessa kind of world. Uh, yeah, she is a wonderful discovery. I'm not really that well known. Um, I'd say she's yeah, she has a cult following. But anyway, so we did this and yeah. But Paddy Hannah, I think the frankly stuff um, was it. I'd only discovered Scott Walker. I kind of discovered Scott. This is embarrassing now, but I was just explaining to you before we came on that like I was never a big listener really to to music. So I um I I've made so many like um like radical discoveries for myself that you know people have known about all their um music fan lives but uh yeah when I moved into the house in Fibsborough um that I was talking to you about earlier um with all those musicians uh one of them Ian had this big box of vinyls and there was no room to set up the record player anywhere but my room so even though I had the smallest room I don't know how that worked <laughs> out but uh yeah, uh, we ha- and I used to Wait, because there was too many boxes of records elsewhere. No, like it was, I was telling you, it's very, very, you know, <laughs> like full of shabby chic character and like not much space for anything. <laughs> and there was full, it was full of instruments. Like there was a piano, <laughs> like a piano, an organ, two saxophones, two bassoons. <laughs> like it was outrageous the amount of gear, like um, uh, that was, yeah, rocking around it. So anyway, the, the... The record player, uh, the vinyl player was set up in my room and I'd never had access. I was, you know, admiring your collection here, but I'd never had access to vinyls before. It was one of those amazing automatic ones too, do you know, so I didn't have to worry about breaking it. The spindle or, you know, the the wee yoke that you put on. So that's where I discovered Scott Walker and Broadcast. It was the first time hearing like Tender Buttons and... uh, who else? There was the Flaming Lips, their Beatles covers album, and the Adventures Through Time by Dave Brubeck. There was Nancy and Lee Hazelwood. It was I, just all of these records that these were lying around. Gilliband. Gu- 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 like there was, yeah, just this bo- beautiful box that had been embroidered in like this gorgeous um, fabric. And uh, yeah, for at my leisure, and I just used to lie in bed and have the door open and I listened to them in a and way. And the that whole I, house was listening to it as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, there was no sound perfect. Um, and then also, <laughs> would be upstairs above me like producing electronic music so that would kind of be his beats would be like you know sifting <laughs> down to me there was at one point during the pandemic we all turned to because like I wasn't doing piano bar gigs or anything and then the two of the others were classical musicians so they were te- they'd just taken teaching piano online and they had far too many students so they kept offloading 
like you know this like the Clontarf Music School then it would go to me and then the one in Kinsley so I just became this piano teacher <laughs> and at one point I swear to god there was three of us in different rooms the highest teaching piano like it was a music school <laughs> um at one point and actually yeah the those piano teachers both they're not piano <laughs> pianists really no they are but uh they they're me an instrument Gabby is a cellist and she did all the string arrangements on my album and then Justin played the bassoon and did the bassoon solo and also was responsible for finding Miriam who played the flute because when he first heard the little bird arrangement that we'd done with the model d that synth I was talking about it sounded very dystopian and almost I felt like it was singing to you from a big billboard in Japan or something like you were like floating above a city in like enter the void kind of way he was like where is the bird like Clara you what has happened here you know we had wonderful access to like probably one of the best flautists in Dublin you know because they all went to college together in the academy and um, then we like yeah he wrote the arrangement out in Sibelius and brought her in like the next day Great. So, yeah, so that was, um, I do feel like that, I cannot remember where this question began. <laughs> I think it, I was, think it began was, with how I was working with Daniel Fox. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, Paddy Hanna. Yeah, I loved, I listened to Paddy Hanna. We had, frankly, I mutate um, in that box of records. Oh, that is, that's okay. how I, yeah. I could hear the Scott Walker vibe, you know, having mm, recently discovered Yeah, I think, I think it was a big influence on him for that album. Yeah, and uh, I also... Um, one of the guys that used to live in the house was friendly with with him so he had actually been he used to hang out in our house and he crashed on the like in the music room floor on the music room floor a couple of times and I remember when he was over he used to play the mo- the like least like noise rock avant-garde like well it was probably avant-garde in a different way um I remember there was an amazing Hawaiian band that I've, he doesn't remember who they were but like uh he had just a really broad eclectic melodic range and what he would put on in our house when he was over and I think it was a combination of that his music taste basically and what and the production that he'd done with Paddy that um finally made me um it was it was the homeopath though that told me that I had to ring up Dan Fox because I was having a bit of a like nervous <laughs> breakdown and uh, my stomach was just not really like having playing ball with me at all and so friends were like Larry you really you know you have to go and talk to someone or like you know sort this out and I was like oh but it's a physical thing and like obviously coming from the massive stress because I was you know I turned 30 and like I still hadn't recorded this blinking album and it was just like what am I doing um I I really I was so scared of getting it wrong you know or it, it seemed like because I didn't have a band really before I used to perform with the drummer just so there weren't you know the, the arrangements weren't really fleshed out and um it was hard to know really where to where to begin and I'd done like I'd worked with a few other producers and just I would only but I would kind of play it safe I'd go in with one song and then it just would just you know, feeling it out feeling out yeah, with yeah. one song and I, I never released it you know I, I didn't it just didn't Feel really work but I, I actually have now come to the conclusion that in order to make those songs work you, you kind of had to view them as a body of like a whole work as a, well, yeah, a work kind of see whole. the grand vision yeah, sort of thing for them yeah I think that's what we had to do because mm. there are so many different ways that you could have arranged them and even the way I used to sometimes play like Black Forest and Scorpio like completely different like with the kind of trip hoppy drums and a really big like piano arrangement and then what Dan brought to the table was like he he could kind of 
he says himself that he actually, like, to be honest, had no idea what we were going to do. But he, he sold it to me anyway. It sounded like he had a plan. And I was like, Dan has a plan. You know, it's, I, you know, <laughs> and the homeopath had told me, it was like, you need to go into the studio or you're going <laughs> to mess up. You're, you're going to get a stomach ulcer. Why did the home, homeopath say that? Is that what? Homeop- oh, because no. Yeah, because they're psychic. No, oh. no, no, no. She kind of does, I think, have a, a, a psychic energy. But she did... Um, she she could just tell this was what was stressing you out and she was just like you need to get this weight off your chest yeah she she let me talk to her for like three hours or something oh outrageous yeah so by the end of that she had she 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 gathered that the issue was the fact that i had a lot of pressure on wow. myself to actually release something and um and i was putting like because it hadn't worked in the past i didn't know how i would ever do it you so know? you're almost scared of recording it I was terrified. Yeah? I was wow. so scared because anytime I tried to record before, I, I, I'm also like, I used to be, but I'm trying not to use this word anymore, a perfectionist. I'm an ex-perfectionist because <laughs> yeah. um, it's so damaging. Like it really is in a healthy way as an artist to, to behave. Um, but I always have been like from school and like anything I ever did, like I always kind of wanted it to be as like good as it could possibly be. Like my dad used to have this wee line when we were growing up because... I don't know, I shouldn't really be saying this, but like you're only as good as your last mistake. So I have this sort of, you know, that you kind of had to try and, you know, always be excellent and um, not really make mistakes when really at the end of the day, it's all about trial and error and and messing things up. And that's probably what I was doing over the years, but just without releasing it. And then thankfully after the homeopath got it out of me that I she near she wanted me to call up Dan Fox what, like in front of her because she didn't believe God. me that I would actually do it but I was like I swear I will so I did uh, I don't even think he knows this when you go to him the songs that we hear on the album like how much of them did you have and how much did Dan kind of add to it so structurally it was all there like the the you know the song structures were were are pretty much intact um like so whereas like now I'm kind of wondering I'm maybe getting a bit braver and I'm kind of contemplating like what would it be like if I approached the studio, you know, with some, um, you know, maybe like to leave some more room, you know, or like space to like improvise and stuff. I think there might be a bit more of that. Whereas I actually heard Junior Brother talking about this, like in his first album, like he wanted everything to be exciting, you know, and I very much had that approach. Like I, and I used to always be saying to Dan, like, is this, what, what if, is it getting boring? You know, and Dan would be like, no, it's not like, it, it's not <laughs> don't worry but I was always you know very aware of that um so I think what Dan brought was the bass lines he wrote like yeah pretty much all of them apart from the Jane Birkin one which um we we it was kind of we just took that from the demo like there were some songs that I'd like demoed Jane Birkin would have been one of them when like kind of had a fuller arrangement so we kind of like that probably because that was a more recent one and I was a bit more adept at Ableton um so we would have kind of taken that and then um, I think what, yeah, his was, it was like the guitar. That was, I think, one of the main things that he added that was never there before was the acoustic guitar mm. on Jane Birkin. Just like made it all jangly, the double track Gibson. And then on Baby Witch as well. Um, it, uh, yeah, that really brought so much. And I think the thing that like brings the whole thing together, and this was his idea, was to try and do like a 70s drum sound. And once we, that was the one thing that we decided before we went in like we didn't even meet up we just were emailing about it because he was really busy because it was before you know we went in on the 12th of march which is literally oh, I'm, no. i'll never forget <laughs> it brendan was like i think they're gonna close down the schools and we were just like i got you know a <laughs> gas looking around 
yeah we never even rehearsed together Brendan and I think so a lot of it did kind of come in terms of arrangement very spontaneously just in the studio like all the bass and the drums like lines we got them done the first two days and there was no there was not really any change to that so I think that was quite serendipitous like making that call to go for the sort of 70s drum production that drove us in a direction that unified it 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 just apart once we had that then we would just go in of a given day and you know try, try. I was really like we had lockdowns as well in between so, so actually, when did you finish when did you finish the album we began started on March 12th yeah <laughs> and it finished in Halloween yeah. 2020 yeah 2020, oh okay, yeah. okay so do you know it's two years anniversary now dan had originally booked me in to have the whole album recorded and mixed in two weeks because he was going on gilliband tours of america and europe and stuff so i i kind of loathe to say it because i know that other people didn't have such a joyous um existence in lockdown as i had um in our house with us all just playing you know the various instruments all the time but i i do think that really helped um having the time in between recording sessions for for me to kind of get my head around it and yeah sort of work in a way that probably Dan wasn't accustomed to really the other thing that he brought massively to the album was you have to make your decision on this right now sort of approach like there was no room for he doesn't let you leave a window open basically oh. like yeah if you're trying to decide whether to keep a bar or like take a bar out you have to decide there and then oh wow yeah it's like your homeopath making your call exactly <laughs> your call yeah, straight away I, exactly. I don't trust you that you're gonna make this decision <laughs> if you leave the studio like like it was perfect because I as you can probably get you know over the years of like chronically being overthinking things and um I do love to and I did you see the thing is I had time in between where I could really take things apart and think about them and come into town and be like, well, haha, this is what we're going to do next. But uh, in the moment when I was in the studio, like I really had to start making split. Like I'll never forget the day, the very first track we recorded was Soap Girls. And I had this idea in my head from the demo, I think, that um, that I wanted the, the drums to only play on the offbeat. Like, mm, mm, mm. and then... And and Dan and Brenton kind of like, you mean like reggae, like dub? And I was like, I know I lived in France. And I was just like in my head, internal monologue, being like, oh my God. And they were kind of looking at me and on and my head when it comes to production arrangement, I just felt like such an ignoramus. So I, but I, but it, there's something, I don't know, came out in me anyway. And I stood my gun, like, you know, stood by it and was like, no, we're, I think it has to just be on the offbeat and uh, there was yeah a couple of other like things like calls that happened like that even in Black Forest I don't know what came over me uh, it had a it really in the its original form it's, it's a very much a piano song it has a big and kind of spooky piano intro and the outro is inspired by a Bach prelude in C minor like it's very like piano heavy and I just for some reason that day maybe it was partly because I didn't know how those the 70s drums would work with it you know in its piano format I just refused I, I, I wouldn't play the piano at all and they just sort of jammed the the bass and the drums and that's what it, it ended up like it's almost like a cover of the original Black Forest <laughs> track <laughs> but yeah there was things like that you know that you just kind of and I think Dan brought that out in me you know like the ability to just be like okay we're, we're just gonna do it this way and trust that it'll work there was definitely I think a lot of that that mightn't have come naturally to me and if I'd worked with some other producer that was to, the album would probably still be ongoing mm. <laughs> yeah come baby come come and find me in my black Forest 
a taster of Black Forest, the title track of Clara Trace's debut album. We'll go through more of the tracks, talk about her time in Paris, talk about some cheese, the amazing artwork for the record by Salvatore of Lucan, and we'll talk about lots more as well. That's all coming up in a little bit. But first, let's have some great brand spanking new music. You'll hear in order Ways of Seeing talking about his track Every Night, Deshoda talking about looking for you, and then Kez on how can you not see. We'll hear all the tracks in full too, and then we'll get back into the interview with Clara Tracy. So first, here's James, aka Ways of Seeing, on Every Night. Ways of Seeing is the solo project I started about three years ago, after taking a few years break from properly writing and releasing music in other bands, namely Hush Warcry and Dear Desert. Um, So at the moment I'm based in Cork, but I actually wrote a lot of the album, which I've just released, uh, in the attic of my family home in Kerry during the pandemic. Every Night was one of the first songs I wrote for the album. It actually started as a much more electronic synth-driven song. But as I was writing the rest of the album and kind of feeling my way through the overall atmosphere I wanted, it became more obvious that it was going to be a more kind of live drums and guitar driven song, especially when I got the opening riff. And then I guess the ending is a little nod to the, the previous incarnation of us, of the song. So it's it's about, I guess, it's about overcoming thoughts and fears that, that might keep you up at night and... The chorus then relates to kind of the biggest fear I had when I was a child, which was walking the roads at night and imagining the, the darkness filled with ghosts and the, the boogeyman and all of that. And you slowly realise that these journeys were more of a psychological test, if anything, uh, a fear of something that maybe isn't even there. And sometimes we can do the the same with our memories as adults and I feel we can sometimes you know, imprison ourselves in a story that is uh, detached from reality. Uh, so the song is about reflecting on memory and gaining a new perspective on it. Uh, that's really it. So the album End Comes to Light is out now. Please do give it a listen. Gallows, we're ending up. 
affairs and the cases enough to miss it. The world feels borrowed, and so we let go. I need to talk through what I can choose to be a convict. Wait for days till it escapes. Hey Alan, it's Gavin from Deshota here. I just want to say thanks very much for featuring the track on the podcast. Uh, I really enjoy the show, so it's nice to be part of it in some small way. And I'm really glad that you like the track as well. So uh, thanks for that. 
The song itself started life as a co-write with Richie McCourt and I later worked on it with Ross Fortune. So it's my first collaboration and that's really nice because uh, throughout the pandemic I, I was just kind of writing away in the background. I didn't have any like direct releases. I, I did a remix actually for Benny Smiles who, who is Ross Fortune and uh, yeah, it was just really nice to have that shared experience of working on something with people as opposed to just being on my own because um, isolation, I suppose, was such a theme of the pandemic and I suppose this was my way of uh, escaping that and I was doing a lot of exploring into what, you know, what I wanted to get out of being an artist and what I wanted to put out into to the world. So it's really nice to actually put some, something out there and see how it resonates with people and uh, enjoy the buzz of it again because it had been quite a while. Um, I suppose the track itself was inspired by uh, the idea of ambivalence, which is something I've always kind of been interested in and kind of trying to tease out, you know, how that plays out in life, whether it's in relationships or in decisions you have to make and this constant questioning and not being satisfied with things. So... It's a song that kind of has more questions than answers uh, for me anyway. And yeah, it started life a little bit more lo-fi. I did a kind of a more stripped back version of it. And then when myself and Ross were working on it, he took it in a different direction, which was really nice because um, it was the middle of the pandemic, the lockdown. And then he sent me this bounce of a track that was like had more of a, a disco-y, dare I say, groove. And... It was just really nice hearing it. I was I played it back on the canal just off my phone, having a few beers with my girlfriend, and I said, "Yeah, this is this is what we'll do. This is the way to go." So I'm really happy to share it, and I'm happy to say there's a few more releases on the way now that I worked on with Ross. Yeah, I mean that that's the story of looking for you, and I'm really glad again that uh, you enjoy the tune. And uh, I hope you enjoy the next ones when, when they're released. So thanks again, Owen. It's a certain kind of sadness 
to tell you a little bit about How Can You Not See, which is my debut track, which came out on the 14th of October. So yeah, I wrote How Can You Not See a couple of years ago. Um, I was in my parents' house at the time. I was kind of going through this weird transitional phase. I just moved back to Dublin from um, California, where I was living for a few years. And yeah, the song kind of just landed on my lap. didn't have to work much at it, which is great. It's really beautiful when that happens with songs. The ones that you don't have to work for sometimes are maybe a bit more, um, I don't know, solid or something. So yeah, I wrote a couple of years ago and we produced it myself and my friend and amazing musician and producer Rory Ryan. Uh, we produced it in Galway during COVID. Sonically, we were kind of listening to like a lot of Radiohead, listening to a lot of like Arcade Fire, Seeger Ross at the time. We were kind of trying to frame my voice in a way that was kind of like dark and kind of atmospheric. Yeah, something that kind of gave it a darker frame so that my voice could kind of sit in that. So yeah, really happy with how it turned out and I'm delighted with um, the reception and the response and Thanks so much to anyone who's listened to it already. Yeah, you can stay up to date with what I'm up to. Probably my Instagram's best. Uh, my handle's at k.e.z. And I'm working on some new stuff. So yeah, be sure to give it a follow and you can keep up to date on what I'm up to. So thanks so much and happy listening.
So it opens up with an instrumental track called Russian Gymnast 1 and it closes with Russian Gymnast 2. And in the middle, then, there's Midnight at the Mulan, mm-hmm. which is another instrumental track. Does that kind of set the scene? It's kind of like a journey that you wanted to tell on the album, is it? I think I knew when, I, when I'd when i come up with the um, original uh, Russian Gymnast theme that that could be almost like a light motif and and, and and funnily enough it like it runs very well into Soap Girls but it's and I, I don't really feel like I was inspired by Soap Girls when I wrote it but like it, you, you would nearly think you know if I had a grand composer's hat that I was riding the Russian gymnast to go into then that other riff which starts in the same key and the same like same four notes it, it came afterwards actually and yeah, I was glad. I always wanted to have two. Originally, there is another version. There's actually three gymnasts. The other one, which I do love, and I really, really do want to do something with it. Hopefully, we're going to perform it like this. It's Spilt Milk, actually. It was for that theme to be played on cello. And I have sort of the like a distorted harmonic synth sound under that. And we have, somewhere I have the recording of that. But there was just some kind of logistical thing that happened with me being a little bit chaotic um, in planning studio time that meant that we somehow recorded the first half of that on the cello and then I don't know why we didn't get around to doing the second half where the piano comes in. So then we tried to stitch it together with so the cello would come out and then like da-da-da-da and the piano happened. Um, but that ultimately in my head made no sense so I sacked the cello arrangement and uh, and decided to do its solo piano instead and funnily enough it was the last very last thing that we recorded <laughs> that intro um I uh I don't know why I just I I think what I had it is like kind of a, a fuller piece but I f- for the purposes of the the album it just needed to be that length I think so whenever I was actually trying to record it on my piano at home just with Justin kind of helping me with the mics and uh, I was doing it in its fuller sometimes I play it live in in the full arrangement and it just I don't know it just didn't seem to to work so I'd spent like nearly two whole days at home trying to record that Blinken Gymnast and uh, getting and and I was telling Dan and I was like, yeah, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't nailed it yet. And everything else we did just happened really, you know, quickly and seamlessly. And then on the very last day, and I'm talking, this was October, there was no more time. I was so badly out of studio time. He told me, he set up one mic the same way he had set up the one single mic for um, Strange Flowers, just like not even on the piano, just far, far enough, you know, away in the middle of the room. And he was like, you've got one take, you were doing yeah. it. And, and Gabby was down there with me and I just played it. It's that. just like having a deadline. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. all I ever needed for an essay yeah. or anything. It's so funny. Like deadlines, deadlines <laughs> just always work. Yeah, they always work. Uh, Soap Girls, which you've mentioned a couple of times is the next track, incorporates French into the lyrics. We haven't talked about you living in Paris uh, yet at all. When did you move over? I moved in 2009. Wow. <laughs> no, it's a little babine. And uh, yeah, I was just fresh out of college had it in my head. I'd study law with French. I wanted to work in a French law firm. I wow. have no idea why Owen and that dream came true. And I worked uh, at the Arc de Triomphe. Um, I actually, originally after I graduated, I had a full on like quarter life crisis. I think deep down it started when I was in Erasmus in Lyon and I was studying 
like the law in a French university and uh, it was just so so tedious I, all I can liken it to is you know when you get like these cookies you know you have to accept them or reject them but like if you have to actually read the blinking thing oh, yeah, or yeah. the terms and conditions but in French like it was so dry and horrendous so I um, pretended that it was all okay because I was still in you know three years into this degree at the time went back to Belfast and got on with it parting away and um, then suddenly had the degree and I knew that I didn't want to go and um I didn't want to go to the bar or do the LPC course. So I moved to London, actually. From Paris from, or from Belfast? No, from, ba- from Enniskillen. I'd gone oh. home like an agent. At that time, I really, it's so funny because it just seemed to me that like, I well, I didn't know any, it never occurred to me to write a song. Like I didn't know, I'd kind of abandoned music. Um, at that point when I was studying, if I went into a room and there was a piano, it was like encountering an ex that I was on very bad terms with. Like I, I had this real feeling of regret and sadness because it was like, I know I didn't have any repertoire I couldn't you know or if I was going to play something it would have been the same old tune did, did you see it as a choice like career like law career sort of thing or music you saw them as uh, I didn't see I didn't know that there was this um other uh, avenue I just thought that, uh, everyone in my experience in school it was quite a you know just a Catholic girls grammar school you know and what happened was people were good at music and then they they went off studying music in Queens and came back and taught flute to you know like the half the kids who probably weren't even interested I just thought it was such an unbelievable waste of their gift to not not that and I love I do actually really love teaching but um and I wouldn't want that to be my uh, I just knew it wasn't for me. Like, I didn't want to, I didn't want that. I kind of hankered after, I think, traveling and something a little bit more glamorous. So because I didn't know that I wrote songs or anything, I just, yeah, I thought that I didn't want to study music because I thought that that was a highway to boredom. And um, I ended up, it was just all that I, I, all that I knew, really, which was, you know, small town, very kind of, I don't know if I'd been in Dublin or someone, maybe I could have thought about composing or, but uh, yeah. So, in some so why ways, did you move to London? Then I moved to London after that summer of like really kind of heavily freaking out in my bedroom. I just, I just moved to London. I didn't have a clue what I was going to do there. Um, and I ended up, it was the recession, 2009. So I, I, I lied about my degree to get a job. I said that I'd studied economics and I, I worked in, I was writing in actually in an investment magazine, oh, like wow. working in the city. Like it was such a bizarre. <laughs> Post-recession and everything. I know. Like it was, it was. Everything is fine. Yeah. No, no. The dollar was tumbling. I remember that. Like I wrote some, yeah, tra- tragic thing about, it. it's very embarrassing now. But like, I just, you know, I was, this is where I was coming from. And, uh, I, I did, though. I started playing in three different bands. I was only there for two months. I played in three different oh, bands. Wow. One of the lads in the band actually posted me over a piano when I moved to Paris, like an electric keyboard, which was so sound of him. Um, and then, yeah, so I did an so interview. So you continued from London to Paris. to Paris. Yeah, I did a Skype interview, got into this uh, law firm, um, just working as a paralegal, but I wanted to suss it out. And um, I actually think it was probably one of the best things I ever did for my French. Like, I don't know if I would have got the the fluency up and running so quickly if I hadn't been so badly stuck in the deep end in that law firm like answering the phone and trying oh like writing emails and just there was no other there was no other um like 
anglophone there it was a very french oh, okay, firm. Right. yeah <laughs> and i remember the first three weeks just sitting there at the lunch table being like a not they thought i was really shy and quiet and i i was more i was much more reserved then but i wasn't as bad as i was at that point and then i just i'll never forget there was one day the penny dropped and i just realized i, I was following their conversation oh, okay. after about three weeks and then yeah and then i started piping up a bit more and probably i used to sing at the photocopying machine and they thought i was i think a bit loopy loo and then yeah I I actually yeah I got fired I think my my parents know about this now it was a big secret for a long time I never let on I just told them about a month later that I decided to work in a jazz cafe instead and uh, so you worked in a jazz cafe I did I did I I went from the law firm to a jazz cafe just working behind the bar and uh, that's that's sort of how I got into the singing like I, really, yeah. my boss um uh how romantic like I know work, it working is, in a jazz it cafe in Paris no, and you no, found it, yourself as a musician. It sounds it sounds romantic when I put it like that, but actually for the first two years that I worked there, I never sang a note. Like there yeah. was a jam every Tuesday night, but I I was just yeah wor- like working away, and I used to program the bands as well, which was fun. Yeah, it was it was it was a really kind of old school. Kind of authentic it wasn't a pretentious jazz club like there a lot of the ones on the thing an unpretentious jazz club. i'm telling you it wasn't <laughs> yeah. no it really wasn't like it was there was loads of old like currency you know like from all over the world oh, stuck yeah, up yeah. and like the boss azu loved talking to people about like where they were from like it was it, you know you get like a real melange of um people not just hardcore there were there were the odd one you know that they would sit and sip at their half pint of Stella Artois for like five <laughs> hours, um, annoying to serve. But uh, yeah, I, 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 and then yeah, fun. If I'm telling this story honestly, like I didn't start singing there right away at all. I actually ended up. It was only after I went and my mother was starting to panic that I had really become a bohemian wastrel altogether. And uh, I suppose she could just see me working in that bar for the rest of my life. And so she suggested. Um, that I do this masters that um, uh, Borbia were running. She heard it advertised on RT1. And so I ended up doing this um, fellowship, <laughs> the fellowship of the ring. And uh, I worked for uh, Irish food companies uh, representing them in France. So we were taken from all, like there was 25 of us and um, we were up in Smurfit for a summer. And then like they wanted people who were not from a food background, basically. So they, you know, it didn't matter that I'd studied law. It was actually such an intense I, I could sort of liken it to doing the apprentice or something like we were sitting around in a horseshoe um with these lectures over from harvard and like they were lit like you'd have all these cases to read and if you didn't answer or pipe up like they'd, they'd pick on you like so i had to really just get over my aversion to public speaking and giving they'd be sent out of the room and have to give a 10 minute presentation that you had 10 minutes to prepare like it was so mad um so and then when I actually got to Paris that was much easier than just like representing those companies but I would have to get up in front of boardrooms of men in suits and tell them about you know Irish frozen pizza like I was doing working for Goodfellas I had cheese strings oh, wow. and uh yeah and then Cashel Blue Cheese actually which was the mm the pièce de résistance in my little card of of um clients and I still work for them actually they oh, really? that pays my rent yeah um <laughs> for the last 10 years <laughs> so after the jazz cafe you got a job in food I representing got, the food for, for I, well Paris. I only did don't I see, we were supposed to actually work well I suppose no I did get a job no to the chronology of it is I finished the master's um 
I had I ended up while I was doing that meeting some guy who was in Paris who wanted to take a show to the Edinburgh Fringe so I went off graduated from the Masters then spent the whole month of August performing every night at the Fringe like this is me that had been coming from no performing and uh, as his, as just playing piano not singing and then I got the bug and then I instead after all that can you believe my mother I went back to work in the jazz cafe with my big fancy masters. And like, then I started performing at that point. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, I started to put on my own gigs there because it was easy and could program myself. Program oh, yourself. <laughs> and, uh, and I knew all the customers like would come. <laughs> so I had a ready-made public. And uh, yeah, then I, and then it, it's just kind of complemented itself really beautifully um, working for Cashel. And um, it's meant that I've really kept up my French because I still have to make cheese calls all the time. And, <laughs> cheese calls. Um, do you get free cheese from them? Of course I do. Wow, what a oh my god! I know. At what one point, dream. at one point, I was trying to fend off the mice in my old flat because any time I opened the blinking fridge, like it was just full of Oof. cheese. Well, if you've lived in Paris, it's kind of yeah, uh, yeah. It's it. It wouldn't. It doesn't look like they would bother you here, but. Um, yeah, no, I had so much cheese um, <laughs> in the, like I had wheels, like I don't know if you've ever seen oh, the, wow, wheels the, full cash, wheels. the full wheels. Oh, I would wow. have about 10 wheels in my fridge at any given time. It was that's amazing. My, I, think that, I think that's like a dream Christmas present that I would like, you know, just wheels of cheese. Yeah. Or I mean, you see them at weddings as well, just wheels cake, of cheese yeah. as a It is, as a cake. and it's actually not really that unaffordable. Mm. Um, it's like it's, 50 quid or something yeah, for a wheel, isn't it? Yeah, and if you're like splitting that, you know. It just it just looks, looks like such an amount <clears> of cheese that you'll never get through it, but actually it oh, probably lasts a <laughs> oh you will and you can melt it on your I mean you're probably vegetarian but it's very nice melted on steak or in pasta and all manner of things but uh, actually there's you were talking about soap grills there I might be how we got onto this but there is uh, actually a uh, a low-key cheese reference in there oh in the second verse <laughs> it mentions analog cheese du fromage analog um which is i actually the antithesis of cashel blue um it's the cheese that they use on frozen pizzas which is actually not even real cheese it's it's analog like it, it sounds like it'd be organic it's but, like you know, the easy it, singles type of thing or something not even it? i don't know there's no dairy in it anyway it's just oh. this uh, yeah there's it's, no dairy cheese on Frozen on, on in some yeah if you, if you if you look on it, if it's got like fromage analog so i was like talking about fromage analog does a wrap like in a kind of filthy wrap sort of kebabs type thing um that's how badly i tortured myself <laughs> sometimes um so just to finish up talking about paris like did you live all over the city as well like did you enjoy it as a whole or i did um though we used to at one point when i was playing in this electro folk band paper heights like one of those bands that we who were hugely formative like they would have been huge fans of coco rosie and um tamper tamper and um i i you know we listened to a lot of that at that time but we always rehearsed and drank cans and only ever played three gigs but i was in that band for like about four years and uh we used to have a joke that we had to take our passport anytime we were going out of the 18th because that was the montmartre district that we we just sort of like we all lived on parallel streets and i i spent i always i lived in the 10th which is a really cool area near the canal saint martin when I first moved um, besides Strasbourg Saint Denis and I loved it there because it was right in kind of in the heart and just near the African quarter and um, I then ended up moving sort of more in the direction of the Sacre Coeur have you ever visited the white church on the hill I've been to Paris in like over 10 years oh think, wow so. well if you you might remember the square with all the artists mm. they try to kind of rip you off a little bit and yeah. do a dodgy portrait um, I used to sort of um, sort of circle around that church um and live behind the the area it's um behind the boot as they call it is is really um 
cool. Like it's there's the tourists don't really venture that side. And uh, yeah, but I, but I worked beside the Latin Quarter. The jazz cafe was in the Latin Quarter. Uh, so I was often cycling. I used to ride the bike down Oh, the now hill everybody is cycling around Paris. They've like done a really good job of um, making the city cyclist friendly. They have. I mean, they have. Maybe it might be better now, but I remember you're still in the bus lane. It was one night yeah. there, and there was a huge pothole on the Boulevard Saint-Michel. And I, it's a, yeah, it's probably, I think, the closest I've come to the other side. Um, I went into the pothole and my oh, scar no. fell into the spokes. And I, it was the first time in my life over the you know, over the handlebars. And then, but I went so far, like there was a night bus like coming right behind me. Um, Yeah, but uh, so I wouldn't, now I'd say that you would take your life in your hands cycling around Paris, but I was- Yeah, it it sounds like they're really (laughs) uh, investing in it. Like I think the plans for 2024, 25 are to make the Arc de Triomphe circle roundabout um, cyclist only. Oh, wow. Get rid of all the cars. When when I went, I just went up the Arc de Triomphe and was just looking down and just like, how are all of these cars- how do they know what each other is doing? It's absolutely oh, mad no, to watch there's it. Not even, there's it's no, terrifying. It's, there's it's no stressful. road markings. Yeah. There's no road markings. It's just cobbles yeah. like around that. Oh, and man. there's about seven like round like lanes, but uh, with, with without any sign of them. But did you go on the, the tunnel underneath when you went to it? Like there's oh. an underground sort of walkway. Like walking, yeah. I yeah. Think so. I actually, the first time I was there like years and years ago, like I just, yeah, I ran across the road. Like I don't know how I made it because it's quite far. Like Across I, the road, the yeah. Arc de Triomphe. Yeah. Like, across all of the seven <laughs> lanes of travel. How? I, know, I don't know. <laughs> I Live to tell the tale. I know. It's a miracle. But yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, bringing it back to, to Soap Girls and you singing French uh as part of the lyrics like we hear french before we hear english on the album did that just kind of come naturally to you kind of doing that incorporating french into the lyrics i i think so um i it's not it's not it's not really something that i i was gonna say i don't do it consciously but sometimes i i don't sometimes it just i run into it because it's almost like just another color you can use another sound like i i don't really see and i suppose i, I should maybe you know have more heat for you know the listeners who might not understand what I'm saying but I think I really enjoy that um sort of I I, I said that line je me touche, you know I, I wouldn't say that in English so that's part of the reason I think um I wrote those lyrics to to soap girls um over one very bleak uh New Year's Eve I think and uh I I had written something it was all in English and it actually started off like with the start of the second verse but it was like I torture myself like a semi-salvate masochist and I woke up the next day and was like oh for god's sake you're such a tortured blinking boring soul feck off with that and so I I just realized though that if you played with the the language you know you changed it around just changed that one verb the whole thing worked in a very different way and it suddenly became a fun song about you know the borderline celibacy at that point (laughs) I wasn't feeling very good um but I yeah I think I I I like using French yeah sort of as a cloak at times and I'm doing that a bit in the second album as well I think and like living away from Paris now do you find like do you find that you're kind of using it less thinking about it less in your songs or is it like you're natural in French anyway I'm guessing I had to think about this the other day because I was um 
I I was actually hoping that I that that might be true and that you know I would be more and there are there is a new tune actually that I think almost sounds the first time that it sounds a bit Irishy. Okay. Um, well, someone I played it for them and they got up and started like you know doing a little jig. So um, it's, I was like, okay. I just didn't hear that at all. But uh, apart from that, then I, I on reflection, you know, one of them. In, I think it's because I started writing songs in in France and my first influence was probably Serge Gainsbourg when I heard like Couleur Café and La Javanaise and stuff I just felt like I think the thing that really caught me with him and was the classical music he, he kind of does the Nina Simone thing of bringing his classical piano background in to the popular songwriting and the Beatles did that too I think that's where I really get excited about you know bringing as like Nina says you know the classics came before showbiz so like I love when like I think that's just because I started off playing classical music I knew nothing of popular music really like my mum used to say that you know dr- you know drum beats gave her a headache and so we, we never <laughs> listened to the like anything like I, I really I, I cannot describe how little I know about you know the 90s because of that. You mentioned Serge Gainsbourg. So the next song is probably a terrible pronunciation, is it? Serge <laughs> Gainsbourg. Uh, Jane Birkin is the next song, Wife of Serge Gainsbourg. Yeah. Uh, tell me about her influence on that track. Is the track about her? Or is it just like an indirect influence? See now, if you listen to the... the no, I'm not saying that as if you haven't listened to it. But I mean, what I mean is I kind of... I think I give it away in the lyrics a small bit. For anyone that's uh, heard Jane Birkin sing, I say, you know, her voice is Nico Deep when she sings when she speaks and I think Jane Birkin probably has one of the highest voices in French pop like it's such a you know very like whispery soprano so it's obviously not really directly about about her um but I think it's um it's it's about that what she represents you know like she was um I don't really know much about about either of them really to be honest well um she was actually uh English she's not French she's an English actress and she moved to to France and really you know she she had the petit accent I think to be quite honest the reason now that it's just come to me why I always had such a time for her is because when I would speak French and behind the the jazz you know in the club they often would say to me oh you have a little accent you know like uh, Jane Birkin and uh you know Jane they, they can tell that it's like not it's not full not yeah natural. and she did that deliberately like and you, you can totally use that accent to get you things you know if if you want to use your anglophone charm you just uh-huh. have to ramp up you know je parle français un peu comme ça like with your northern accent or you know it, they think it's really cute but that's terrible feminism but I mean <laughs> uh, I, I I really do notice that now when I go back like honestly the way I I was able to put up with those cheesemongers I just don't know they come up to me at shows and kiss my hand and I'm just like I can't I can't be dealing with this anymore I don't know how I yeah I've had a whole new awareness of of um I, I don't think actually I think Jean Birkin was wonderful because she's such a strong woman and I think Serge Gansborg actually struggled because she was the star. You know? Really, was he? Was yeah, she? yeah. Mm-hmm. Like in music terms, we know we know her through him, but like back in the day, like she was like the film star and um and then they were this pirate couple and they just they would pull these outrageous moves and like I mean she sang to Tem. <laughs> She, uh, well, I think she partly sang Chetem because she, um, the song that was banned um, because she didn't want Brigitte Bardot to sing it. Um, have you heard that one? No. The, oh, it's Chetem, moi non plus. It's, uh, she it, didn't want Brigitte Bardot to, to sing it. 
No, because he was also performing with her. Um, oh. I think on comic strip, it's it might be Brigitte. No, Bonnie and Clyde is Brigitte. But uh, yeah, Jatem one I flew. It actually is a big. Uh, I you know they say don't give away your big inspirations, but like Black Forest, the outro. I mean, it's it's definitely if once you listen to it, it it came out and it was banned. Like the BBC wouldn't play it, so of course it became the most listened to pop song. I think. Not Jeez, in history, I don't, I but don't it's think up I there. Know it at all. What is it? Is it? It's very sexual or something? Is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll go off and do my own. Black Forest outro vibes. Okay. Okay. song called Harry Clark and I know that the press release mentions stained glass windows as well mm. um it's an interesting I don't know is that an influence on the album um, stained glass windows in themselves I think I think uh, that Dan used to describe it at some times like stitching some parts of it together as like a sonic collage and I love collage and um stained glass windows to me are almost like luminescent collages you know you have all the di- you know the various pains and especially the harry clarks yeah two of the best things that have happened since making the record have been sal painting the album cover that was just a treat to watch him in action and then making that video um which was very much a di like you know mainly a diy job in terms of like shooting the harry clark but like i was doing it on jamie's phone because we wanted to make that a stop motion of it and even the bit that we did film the the ira that we had the hugh lane for in there it did feel like i really got to know that 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 window inside out and now when I visit it it's like visiting an old friend or something so I I don't know if I really would have I I knew it was a huge inspiration for for that Harry Clark song and the feeling that I get in that meditative little room just away from Fibsborough just down the road 
on the way into town I loved going in there and sort of just gazing on it um but I don't really feel like I even understood it then there's so much in it I only feel like I really understand that Eva St Agnes now that I've made the video and um yeah but then and and since then and having to make like the like the single artwork I've noticed that um um like the the strange flowers one almost kind of looks like a like a stained glass window and and even to some degree maybe a tiny bit to a lesser extent the Jane Birkham one so I do actually think there there's something in the way that they bring together many visual ideas in the one place and shine light through it there's something really beautiful about that as a concept uh tell me about the art the album artwork you mentioned Sal Salvatore of Lucan uh made the album artwork which is class in itself he seems like he's getting bigger and bigger uh as an artist did you actually see him were you in the room when he was making it yeah wow amazing it was was, honestly it was the highlight of the whole thing um because it's an unbelievable cover like uh he basically what happened was he was there the night that um uh, I invited Maya around the day to Sonic uh, Studios in Sony Batter. The day we'd fin- we wrapped the vocals and we'd just done the Black Forest. We hadn't even heard it back. Like, I think Sal heard it like first. Like, I hadn't even heard what that was like, the outro, but Dan had insisted. Patty Hannah affectionately calls Dan Dan Fox, hater of men and all things sexy. Like, which is so, so, so patty, but like very mean. But I say he was fairly puce now, like after after a few of those tea, well, he only let me do it once. Um, <laughs> and he insisted that we have a couple of bottles of wine. So we were all having a great time. And Sal came over and listened, to, you know, he, he sat through the whole album. It was the first time we'd listened to it all. And there was people just there, um, celebrating and we all went back to my neighbor's house that night and had a mad session and he asked me at one point like I remember like on a couch he was like oh you know would, would you like me to paint the cover for you and I, I like couldn't believe that because I had wanted to ask him but then he actually he wanted to do it of his own bat yeah I'll never forget the night I went I didn't know what to wear I didn't know how you're supposed to go and sit for a painting you know it was, it's not a photo shoot but you should probably still you know, he's probably going to paint me. And so I, I just, I didn't get anything ready. I just remember jumping in the shower, putting on that black velvet dress with no like preempted thought whatsoever and ran, legged out. It was a bit late, picked up two bottles of wine <laughs> and take the edge off. And uh, it was about 10 o'clock at night. And he was like, yeah, he's like, well, so uh, what, what, have you any ideas? Like, and uh, I remember just being like, oh my God, I like, why did I not think of something, you know? Like, should I have brought a cake? Um, should I be in a forest? Like, what? And I I, um, I just went to the loo and I was kind of praying for inspiration. I looked at the the roof of the studios um, in the back loft there on Thomas Street, where he was based at the time. They have all these, uh, like a, a huge collage of French newspaper, old French newspapers, like yellowing. It's really cool. And just directly above me, there was this contortionist. There was a couple, like, I'm not sure if they're dancers or or acrobats but they were in this like kind of you know like put like contoured position like really and I loved that it was circular um and I, I took a picture of that on the phone brought it into him and was like I think oh should, yes this is my idea all along all along here we are <laughs> I was thinking this you know I would have thought that the artist is the one who would have the idea no? well he oh of course he did sure it was his idea he um I mean, he managed to get me into that like position, and he—he he, it was his idea to twist my head around. Like, oh, you know, so you're the, actually posing for him in that kind of a position. I had to. Oh yeah, he took oh, pictures. Right. I was on the floor of a studio, like all kind Contorted. of contorted. Yeah, people do sometimes ask me if I can do that, and I can't. Like he did. He definitely had a bit of um, artistic license with the flexibility. Um, but he, uh, yeah, and 
Yeah, it was cr- what the, the the most insane thing on about about like I don't know painters and how they, I've said because I went on a residency in France earlier this year and uh, there was another it was myself uh, it was musician painter ship thing in the middle of the countryside and they 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 a talk ship? about no sorry it was uh, I mean, it's not a non-word uh, musician painter ship it's, it's oh, you know okay, I was saying okay. like no, yeah, whatever yeah. it was a residency and um uh, they talk about lines and there's like these focal points that they are like drawing the eye towards and so before he began so I'd shown him this and then he was like yeah cool we can work with this I mean to be honest like if I hadn't gone to the loo I'm I who knows what he, he would have come up with something brilliant but uh he started drawing these lines across and they are still there like I, I'm gonna actually I you know I'm not good at social media but I've got a little pack together of the, the evolution of the painting from its very first like pencil line sketch to um, you know, before there was a face, and you know, and watching it through, and but those lines stayed, and so he obviously, because you know what he did as well, which he doesn't usually do, he he painted me, and we didn't know what the background was going to be like, and like you'll see this in the the um, the evolution like photo shoot thing uh we, we were trying to figure out like what am I pro- you know am I propped on something am I sitting am I like curled around a piano so he tried it was so incredible how he was able to just superimpose like a piano stool like he had my elbows on a piano stool and then tried to put the piano but this is after like I was already there and it already looked quite cool me floating in space but then he uh so there was in this I happened to be renting a little studio at the time up there um, because one of the painters was stuck in Thailand and there was a dented poof. So we took the dented poof into his studio and he he superimposed this in like after the event. And yeah, and then I, I seemed to be going into a vortex. Like all of that came, you know, he was like, what what are we going to do with it now? Like, And do you have the finished piece as well? Did he did he gift it to you? Is it still in his possession? Um, it was in his possession. And then um, there he was a guy from that has a light shop down the Keys wanted to buy it and I I actually I don't know what came over me I was like Sal I need to I need to, need to own it. I yeah, was like yeah. I need to get it um and so now it's it's on uh, he did a very very mates rates deal for me on it and now it lives on my upright piano amazing amazing I'm gonna take it I'm gonna take it to the to the gig I sometimes do this like I've been using it in some of the video photo shoots putting it in the back of the car like the poor man's probably losing his life but I have to do that again this weekend because I'm performing in an art gallery in Fermanagh so I think it'll be cool if it's up on the wall as long as it doesn't get damaged yeah I know Foam board, apparently, is the way you told me. <laughs> um, continuing our journey through the album, Baby Witch really jumps out. It's probably like the like one one of the most immediate songs on the album, I suppose. Was that a particularly fun song to make? It it was so cool. Like I, we didn't. I I think we. I don't know if if Dan or if we really loved it that much actually. When until we added in the guitar. Yeah, it's but very acoustic guitar. Exactly. Yeah. So we were we were kind of messing around with it in the studio, and and at one point it was so funny because whatever way we'd done it, like just the piano, bass, and drums, and because it now it you know it does really revolve around that. Um, guitar line um we just weren't that into it like and we didn't even and like brendan the most amazing drummer i think in the country though i don't say that in front of robo cobra um yeah. <laughs> hey i love chris um but i 
uh, he is also brilliant. But anyway, Brendan, we were like, no, the drums is terrible. You know, we took the drums out and we were just, yeah. And then suddenly we were just sitting in there uh, on the sofa and he just started strumming it. And suddenly it kind of almost sounded at that time, if we hadn't put all the rest in, almost like a Velvet Underground kind of vibe. Um, and then we started, yeah, I fell in love with it. Um, I think we struggled a bit with the end of it, the outro, because I, I have since written a big kind of piano part, but I hadn't written it then. It's it's kind of just like throwing everything at the wall, whereas we didn't tend to do that for the rest of the album. It was sort of kind of minimalist, I feel. And in the, and the outro of Baby Witch, I, I did think that maybe we went overboard, but now it's grown on me. It's grown on me a bit. Maybe because they like to play it on the radio. <laughs> Finally, in terms of songs, because it's the second last uh, song, but Russian Gymnast 2 we already covered. Scorpio is a bit of a change of pace, probably the slowest track on the album as well uh you sing i'm sorry for all i've done was this a particularly hard track for you to write yeah it was it's actually i'm sorry for all i don't and didn't take the time oh, to know about this you is, this is this is why we need yeah. lyrics because i'm terrible at like no 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 but it's so true sure sure tim who recorded the subgross video used to think that there was that it was about simon Pegg. he thought <laughs> simon Simon Pegg shaving in the sunlight and it's salmon pink but like you know people I like I am a I'm the queen of it like I used to sing so Sally good way and don't look back in anger like I I never know what the lyrics are but I yeah it's actually I'm sorry for all I don't didn't take the time to know about you um mystery of Scorpio that was that was definitely um it's the darkest song on there and um it was definitely written in tears like I'd had a really um uh sort of deep conversation with my brother who inspired it um and I actually quote him verbatim in the bridge um the how dare we like religion say we're right you're wrong like he just came out with this like, little speech um in the middle of that conversation and I, I went home and it was I wrote the lyrics in Enniskillen and I was very upset at the time he hadn't been well um and yeah I it's funny though, like I find it harder to sometimes, I find it hard to sing live sometimes. Um, but weirdly recording it in the studio, it felt very, um, I think the darkness came in quite well with the synth, like putting the, the, the like that um, Model D bass line. And then the strings really brought it to life, I think. So um, it's, 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 it wasn't too difficult to, to record it I, the recording the vocals is kind of a blur um to me now um but i know it, it's um i think it it leans into some of the darkness that is quite possibly going to be explored further in the second album mm. there's a few dark romantic tunes lurking and did did you find it weird like d did you have to be convinced to put it on the album or, or anything like that um i know i i i know it does it does it kind of sticks out a little bit I think on in terms of like uh, but now if you, in, in the overarching thing I feel like it's sort of it's pointing it in the direction of the next you know the whole album kind of actually kind of gradually gets darker it starts off like kind of French synth pop and then it ends off and I feel like maybe that's where the second album should you oh. know start off with the next song and that like there, I feel like that could be a trilogy and there's going to be Scorpio and then I think Isle of Kathleen might be on the second and maybe I can have another one of that and like in the third or something um but uh no I, I knew I what what it was really difficult because I used to play it with drums and it used to have like a big kind of piano-y big solo and f 
and there was a lot of theatricality almost in it in the in the arrangement and I sometimes find that when it comes to recording things that like work like, like I still play that big piano solo at the end of Scorpio Live now and it works but um at, on the record it's it's really like that dystopian sort of like weird string uh, motif um I I don't think that um it's like trying to film theater you know if you try to record a play it just doesn't work. Um, so I think it sort of had to go in a more cinematic direction and it was hard to know what way to to drive Scorpio away from the the big epic side of it and into a sort of more contemplative arrangement. It's probably the one that I would, if I could go back, I might, I, I, I might like uh, review it a, I'm a bit. Dan- Daniel Fox won't let you. He, he would not. Let you go back. No, no, no. <laughs> he, he, uh, I've tried. <laughs> will not uh you've mentioned recording the second album a couple or making the second album Mm. a couple of times how far along in that process are you are you still writing songs um i've i'm like no i haven't started recording it um in the studio or anything yet um but yeah i've i realized because i when i went to play the album live it's 35 minutes long and i didn't uh, this one this one i i didn't think that was like you're getting the full you know value for money for paying 10 quid in so i was like well we're gonna have to do you know some new new tunes here and it was only when i came to like rehearse the the band and like i was like well actually it seems like there's you know i think the second album's almost written uh in terms of the songs um i just I want to there's there's so many different things that I I uh, want to I could I could see the second album being completely different like I, I think I would kind of love for it to be like that um because I get bored very easily and um I think the one thing that I've maybe learned is uh to allow things to have um space and, and not to be so overly concerned that things will get boring and and yeah I so I hope yeah I think I'll maybe take a different approach with it but um a lot of it's weirdly in a minor so I'm I'm trying to see if I can conceive of it almost like a like a soundtrack that could be in a, a key or you know the way like composers might have written a symphony a certain key and have like recurring like you said is the R- Russian gymnast like in a much like um more detailed way maybe have themes and um that come come back so it's less a, a collection of songs but more of a I don't know cinematic work <laughs> yeah and where are you living at the moment you're in Belfast at the moment I mean like is Paris are you still going over to Paris are you still going over to London down in Dublin today? um to be honest I'm never off the road I'm on that road between Belfast and Dublin all the time because the band's in Dublin and, <laughs> and then between that I'm when like a menage a trois between Dublin Belfast and, and Eskillen but I, I do I still go to France like um, I spent a good chunk of, of the summer in in France and like I was all over I was in Paris Marseille the Pyrenees um, and I was on the residency in outside La Rochelle so I've been I've spent like I'd say nearly a quarter of this year in France um, and I hope to, to keep that up but yeah I know Belfast is an amazing place to be based just the you know having to leave that house in Fibsborough after five years of the rent never going up and you know the family home I knew there was no chance I don't know how it was. obviously you managed it because we're in this 
palatial place in Monkstown with a sea view and a garden. But I, I, um, I didn't know that such things existed. So I, I just, yeah, I, I found this place. It's right in the middle of town um, between the Europa and Castle Court. And it's an old uh, terrace street that has, you know, been around for like the last 100 years. And the residents, like they leave their front doors open and they're always nipping into each other. And uh it's it's an unbelievable community. Uh, it feels kind of like it almost feels like you're walking out onto the uh, the set of a play. You know, anytime I leave the front door, you know, you see Maureen going past and Terry across the road. It's like it's really really cool. Um, and and it seems like the Belfast music scene is um, kind of yeah, doing hopping. really well at the moment. You mentioned yeah. Robocover Quartet. Earlier. Yeah, they're um, Joey, who is Mr. Pizza Pizza, also manages them. So oh, I okay. met them. I met them actually in my first gig back, which is in Dundalk. It was supporting them, uh, and I had I was just about to move to Belfast, and I kind of propositioned them on stage. I was like, I've no friends in Belfast, and like Chris is honestly one of the funniest, and also weirdly. Because, you know, they don't always go together soundest people. And he, he 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 kept his promise. He was like, yeah, we'll go for coffee in Belfast. And I completely kind of forgot about it in the Malay of moving in. And then I went and met him. And they're just, they think, I think they're, there's a thing, you probably know this being from Cork, but uh, there's a, uh, a wit, witticisms like that they have up in Belfast. And you see it as well down in Cork, even though I'm loath to say it. Um, there's just a special kind of humour that's very fun to be around. Um, they're always talking about doing bits and stuff. Like, I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> what doing, that? doing a bit. If you're doing a bit, like you're... Like kinda, a comedy skit. Yeah, okay, so you know. Yeah, I, I, was, I was really happy, Owen, that you didn't know what that was either. <laughs> but like, they were constantly... I went on tour with them. It's like stand-up or something. <laughs> yeah, and they were doing bits on me all the time. And oh, finally, in right. the, the last leg, I was like, what is a bit? Um... <laughs> But yeah, no, I love, and Junk Drawer are amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brian Coney's band, yeah. Yeah, and like Stevie, there's just, um, and also Nisha Rue has moved up there. Oh, and right, so right. is Aoife Wolf. Like, we're like the three blow-ins from the south, even though I'm actually from the north. But uh, <laughs> yeah. we uh, we kind of hang out together and it seems like it's just, there's a really kind of sense of community up there. I sometimes got in the vibe in the Dublin music scene that it's quite competitive and a wee bit sceney and clicky and difficult really sometimes to move around in and I don't get that in Belfast at all everyone is just rooting for you know as Chris as Chris not Chris Barry sorry Chris Ryan says good luck to all bands you know like is that a Dublin sentiment I don't think it is (laughs) but I love it let's finish up there thanks for the chats and congrats on the album thanks so much Owen
Thanks to Clara Tracy for the chats. The album is called Black Forest and is released on Pizza Pizza Records. Get it on her Bandcamp page, claratracy.bandcamp.com. She's playing Spilt Milk Festival in Sligo over the weekend of November 18 to 20. A great lineup there, of course, for what always sounds like a brilliant festival. Junior Brother, The Bonk, Autumns, they're all playing. Many, many more as well over the weekend. Plus there's workshops and film stuff too. But that's it for me this week. Thanks to Clara Tracy for the chats, Ways of Seeing, Kez and Deshoda for the voice notes and letting me play their tracks in full. Go support music, go support the people making them, and we'll be back for another new episode of TPOE next Wednesday. <laughs>